0: Here okay, you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base.
1: Welcome to EMS Cast. I'm your host, Ross Orpit, and we have a special episode for you guys this week. My co-host, Will Berry, and I just recently had the pleasure of attending the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference in Breckenridge, Colorado last week. In a second, I'm going to let Dr. Moreira tell you what the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference is and why you should consider going next year. Some of you may remember Dr. Marrera from episode three, when she joined us to talk about penetrating neck injuries. Will and I had a great time at this conference, and a bunch of the lecturers were kind enough to sit down with us after their lecture to dive deeper so that we could bring some of this great content to you guys, our listeners. After we let Maria introduce the conference, we'll have one of those recordings for you guys to check out this week, and then we'll continue to release some of these episodes from the conference over the next month. And then intersperse them with some of our regular episodes throughout the rest of the year. I hope you guys find this content as valuable as we did. As always, reach out to us to let us know what you think. Check out our website, emspodcast.com, for extra content. Follow us on Instagram at emscast. And if you like what we're doing, tell a friend to check us out as well. i clear, number two. Go ahead. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpit. And I'm Will Barry, And we have a special treat for you guys. We're live on site from the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference. And we brought Dr. Marrera, who helps organize this on, to kind of talk to us about what the conference is. And both Will and I think it's pretty cool. And you guys should definitely consider checking it out. We're here currently now. We've seen some lectures already. They've been phenomenal. And they've got a bunch of more great lectures slated to go. Dr. Marrera, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about this conference.
2: Sure. Um, thanks for having me. This is the Rocky Mountain Trauma and Emergency Medicine Conference, and it's been going on for this is our 49th year. So next year it's the 50th. So I, uh... it promises to be huge. But the great thing about this conference is it's really meant to be an interdisciplinary and interprofessional conference. And you know, one of the things in medicine, we tend to teach in silos, yet we don't work in silos. So the idea of this conference is we're really learning together, just the way that we practice. And so it's great. We have nurses and techs and paramedics and surgeons and emergency medicine physicians. And we have a lot of great different activities that occur at the conference. We have a simulation competition that's happening later today. And then we also have like bullets and beer. And we have sort of a lot of different lectures with the intent that there's you know, information in the lectures for everyone.
1: That's great. And and are being given by everyone. Like you said, you we have lectures being given by paramedics, by trauma surgeons, by pediatric surgeons, by ER docs. Um, so that's phenomenal. I think Correct. the great lectures go without explanation, but talk to us about what's bullets and beer.
2: Oh, so bullets and beer was created by one of our surgeons, Dr. Fred Parachi, and one of our emergency medicine physicians, Dr. Anna Engel. it really was meant to bring surgeons and emergency physicians together initially, but then also bringing others as well, like the paramedics and the nurses. And I think they've even started incorporating anesthesia. But basically, it's a taboo game, but with medicine, (laughs) so with medical terms. And it's a lot of fun and it brings us all together. And, you know, we recognize that there might be sort of different levels, like when people are playing the games in teams. And so we, you know, we kind of work around that. So if somebody feels like, I don't really know what this term is, that's okay. We can skip that and you don't get dinged for it. But if you just don't like the term or don't think you can figure out how you get the rest of the team to guess it, then you get you lose a point that goes to the other team.
1: <sighs> Makes sense. What about these uh, simulation games that's happening in this? Yeah,
2: afternoon?
0: yeah so, I know that that's very dear to your heart because you uh, help run simulation at Denver Health Medical Center.
2: Right. I am the medical director of continuing education and simulation in the Office of Education at Denver Health, kind of creating a interdisciplinary and interprofessional um simulation program for the hospital. This is our fourth year doing the simulation competition. It was something that I brought to the conference um, four years ago with the thought that we would have these teams that would come together. And uh, the teams are uh, made up of a you have to have a surgeon, you have to have an EM doctor and a nurse and uh, either another nurse or another repa- or a paramedic. We haven't yet incorporated, but I'd like to, and maybe that's what we'll do next year is actually a paramedic bringing in the patient giving report and sort of really making it look like what we do in real time, right? And then we have four judges and the judges give feedback on communication, teamwork and clinical care. And they do it real time. So what we do is we have we usually have four teams. We have the team come in, they run a case, we run them through a case. And then right after they're done, they get the feedback. The other teams have to leave for the feedback. The other teams can watch the case so then we can all learn from the cases, but they can't stay for the feedback so they don't get like, you know, they don't get sort of some some stuff that they can change in their management so but it's really great and everybody learns from it and everybody's watching and really kind of gets into it
0: and is it with uh high fidelity mannequins where you can perform procedures and all of the intubate chest tubes whatever needs to be done
2: so it's actually what we use is what's called the, called the cut suit and uh, mm. i have to say an extra thanks to the rocky um vista the the school because they bring their students and they actually lend us the cut suits and they come and they help us put this together so a cut suit, you wear it. So actually a person is wearing it and you can put in a chest tube and you can do a crack. I mean, we can't let you intubate that pa- that person. <laughs> but but yeah, so we tell them. So typically I'll say, OK, they're not breathing, right? Or their respiratory rate is high. Or you give the scenario where you know what you need is to have that patient intubated. Um, so they'll, they'll say, OK, I'm trying to intubate. And I think last year one of our surgeons goes, the patient's intubated. I said, no, they're not. Like you tried eight times and you couldn't get it. So now what are you going to do? And so and then they go and they move on to the crike. So we make sure that they can do procedures, but really they're going through how do we work together as a team and how do we best manage this patient in front of us together?
0: That's awesome. All right. So
1: next year, I know we don't have the firm dates yet, but it's going to be sometime in June.
2: Yeah, we have some dates on the books right now, June 3rd to 6th, but we're looking at that right now if that's still the best or if we're going to change them. So look out for those dates, but um, it'll be sometime around this time. So we will let you guys know as soon as we have those dates solidified, but we promise it's going to be a big one because it's our 50th anniversary and it's also the 50th anniversary of our emergency medicine residency. So I'm hoping to kind of maybe join some efforts
1: there as well.
0: And who doesn't want to come to Breckenridge? I mean... It's beautiful. Yep. Absolutely.
1: Where can people go to sign up and when, about what time can they go to sign up?
2: Yeah. So we are really hoping to have everything. Once this conference is done, we're going to take a little, you know, a little break, maybe well like about a month, um, but then we're going to really hope to get sort of our schedule together for the next one. And the next several months after that, if you go to the Denver health site or just say Rocky mountain trauma and emergency medicine conference, that information will all be there on our website.
0: Perfect. We'll link that in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much. The presentations have been great so far and can't wait to hear more.
2: Yeah. Well, great. Thank you guys for yeah. coming and being here with us.
0: Yeah.
3: I am Chelsea Horwood. I am a surgical critical care and trauma acute care fellow at uh, Denver Health and the University of Colorado. I did my general surgery training at The Ohio State University. I also have my Master's of Public Health in Clinical and Translational Sciences.
0: Welcome to EMSCast, where we provide high-level education to you, the providers on the streets. I'm Will Berry. And I'm Ross Orbit. And we are again live at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference here in Breckenridge, Colorado. And we just heard a fascinating talk on ECMO. And for a lot of pre-hospital providers, we have probably heard of ECMO, but we don't really know what it is. So we're here with Dr. Chelsea Horwood and she just gave a fascinating presentation on ECMO. Dr. Horwood, can you first tell us what is ECMO? What does it even stand for?
3: Sure, so ECMO is uh, E for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And really all it is is a fancy machine to do pulmonary or cardiopulmonary support that's more advanced than some of the basic techniques that we've utilized in the past.
0: And is this a new thing? How long is, we hear a lot about ECMO now, but how long has this been an intervention that can be done to patients?
3: ECMO was actually invented in the 1950s and 1960s. The first successful patient to survive utilizing ECMO was actually a trauma patient who had a thoracic aortic injury. He was placed on veno-venous ECMO for significant ARDS, and he ended up leaving the hospital after being on ECMO for three days. Wow. And that was back in the 1970s. But it really has kind of skyrocketed since the early 2000s, especially in uh, light of the H1N1 and COVID pandemics and really utilizing ECMO as a tool for pulmonary and cardiopulmonary support in patients with significant lung injury.
0: So these are very critically ill patients. Does ECMO fix anything?
3: No, ECMO does not fix anything. It just gives us as providers time time for the underlying pathophysiology to improve or correct itself.
0: In a nutshell, how how does this work? So we're taking the blood out of the body, then what, how do we get it back in?
3: Sure, so (laughs) the ECMO circuit itself is really just a fancy machine to take the blood out of the patient, oxygenate it, warm it, either remove or put in carbon dioxide via the sweep, and then return it back to the patient. You can either bypass the lungs, so you oxygenate the lungs, giving them time to recover, and that is called veno-venous ECMO, or you can do cardiopulmonary support, where you can put them on veno-arterial ECMO, meaning you're returning oxygenated blood to the arterial system, and in theory, giving a little bit of mechanical or physiologic support to the heart as well.
0: So you, you mentioned the inclusion criteria for who gets ECMO is- is pretty complicated. And there's, I'm sure, a pretty complicated decision tree that goes into that. But ultimately, we're either supporting very sick lungs or or very sick heart.
3: Exactly. Or both.
0: And your presentation was specifically for trauma patients. So how is ECMO being used to support critically injured trauma patients?
3: So there's kind of two buckets that I would like to put them in. The first bucket is in the use for intraoperative or the acutely injured patient. This is very unique to trauma. So a patient, for instance, who has a a tracheobronchial injury or underwent a pneumonectomy for significant trauma, these patients were placing on ECMO either before the start of the operating room or during the operation or shortly thereafter because of the actual injury pattern in and of itself. The secondary bucket or the second use is for patients who had trauma and then their subsequent injury has led to significant ARDS or, you know, right ventricular heart dysfunction. Those are patients that we would consider placing on ECMO for the reason that we would place other non-trauma patients on ECMO.
1: So, the indication in trauma is something that is is growing kind of rapidly and recently. When I started learning about ECMO, one of the big complications from it is clotting for various reasons. And so in order to run ECMO, you need a lot of anticoagulation to prevent these complications, which seems counterintuitive to use that in the trauma patient. So why is this growing in trauma and are any of those fears founded?
3: Yeah, so that's a very complicated answer to a complicated question, but primarily you have to anticoagulate patients on the circuit historically, and that was either with systemic heparin or bivalridin. And you want them their blood pretty thin, because, again, like you said, thrombosis is a potential outcome of ECMO. That being said, though, even non-trauma patients on ECMO have significant bleeding complications because of how anticoagulated they are, and also independent factors of the ECMO circuit in and of itself causing the patient to be hypercoagulable. However, we now have heparinized circuits that we can run through, and this has minimized utilizing any anticoagulation at all or a lower dose amount and so for instance the trauma patient who is hypercoagulable we can run the circuit without them being systemically anticoagulated from anywhere from you know 24 hours even up to five six seven days really you just need to have very high alert for clotting within the circuit so you're just hyper vigilant in these patients that you're running without anticoagulation and the caveat being as soon as you think you're able to put them on anticoagulation you should
0: So this ECMO as a therapy is buying us time, how long will they remain on ECMO? Is there a point where there's diminishing return or their injury pattern is such that we're just delaying futility?
3: That is a very complicated answer. <laughs> there has been um, very, very poor outcomes, upwards of you zero know, percent survival after being on the ECMO circuit for about 90 days. So after that time frame, the chance of there really being any outcomes is low. The complicated factor with this is in patients who are placed on ECMO, you can extubate some of them, they can be talking to you, and they're just being totally supported based on the machine. So it brings a lot of really complicated both end-of-life goals, palliative care, and other assistance for having these conversations. You ideally want them to get off the circuit as quickly as possible because of the complications and cost of running the circuit, but you're just buying yourself time, essentially.
1: Are there any contraindications to ECMO?
3: Yeah, the biggest contraindication, specifically to the trauma patient population, but also really any patient placed on ECMO, is an irreversible injury or, or pathology pattern. So, for instance, if they get placed on ECMO, let's say as a bridge to transplant, but they're not a transplant candidate, then you're just putting a patient on a machine, keeping them alive with really no out. So, you really have to think about the patient and whether or not you think this is a reversible injury, do you have, do you just need time for them to heal and correct themselves.
0: In some places, ECMO is is gaining use during like cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Could you speak to that? Do you know much about that modality of treatment with ECMO?
3: Sure. ECPR is really blossoming and that's what it's called. It's emergency CPR or ECMO CPR. I would advocate your listeners to go to the ELSO website. They have a very good tutorial and the indications for ECPR. The difficult part of eCPR is, again, if you think this is a reversible condition. So knowing when and who to pull the trigger on and placed on ECMO is really kind of a difficult decision. A lot of institutions, including Baylor to who I'm going to, are very big in the ECPR program, and they have a distinct criteria of what do you think was the reason for their arrest, how long have they been down for, do you think you can get them treatment for their said problem, and you kind of factor in that algorithm very quickly, and if the answer is yes, you mobilize the ECMO team
0: thinking practically about that and it being time sensitive and this patient is in cardiac arrest how are these patients cannulated
3: they're cannulated at bedside you can do this with either a cutdown so Going into different cannulation strategies, you can either cannulate the internal jugular veins or you can cannulate the bilateral femoral veins. And those you can do via ultrasound or a cutdown. At Denver Health, we tend to do a cut down to place the cannulas because they're pretty large. They're anywhere from 18 to 24 French. So the sheath size is pretty large. And so we typically do a cut down for the groins and we do the cell technique for the neck. And if we're going to cannulate the femoral artery, we also use a cutdown technique in that setting. But you can cut down onto the groin, you know, in about 30, 60 seconds.
1: Wow. And this is a constantly evolving field and is different worldwide. I mean, there are some places that are experimenting with doing ECMO in the field, so bringing that to the field. But currently, who can do this? What centers, what organizations do we think about when we think about this patient may need ECMO?
3: Sure. So there is the, again, the ELSO organization. There are ECMO centers of excellence. And then there are patients, for you to do eCPR or to cannulate, you have to take a certain course to be able to do that. And there's ECMO courses that are offered through specific institutions, or you can look at those national organizations to give you an accreditation or a certificate that you've been trained in ECMO. But the people who are cannulating ECMO are typically trauma surgeons, and more commonly cardiothoracic surgeons are typically doing the cannulation. The management of the circuit is really intensivist, a so cardiac intensivist or trauma intensivists, uh, pulmonary intensivists. And then that comes as a multidisciplinary care with your perfusionist and your respiratory therapist. So it's really a big team that typically is run as a separate unit in the hospital.
1: Do you see as this grows and evolves, this becoming something that becomes more widely available at most centers? Or do you think that this will continue to be regionalized, given you need so many specialties on board at once?
3: I think that cannulation and transporting might expand. I think that the actual management will still probably happen in some of the bigger, more regionalized centers not just because of the number of people that you're needed, but also the cost is extremely high for these patients to be on ECMO. And the outcomes in high volume centers are better than small volume. So if you are only doing a couple ECMOs a year, the cost is probably not there and the patient outcomes also show that.
0: You mentioned that it can be upwards to $250,000 to put somebody on an ECMO circuit. Um, Can you sign me up for two? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I will when you do. (laughs) Some of our listeners do work in a critical care context that may transport these patients. If you've not been trained or exposed to that, can you speak a little bit to just physically how that's done. It sounds like this is very equipment intensive. Is there a specialized circuit for transport or are we just taking the same circuit that they were put on at bedside? You
3: typically take the same circuit. To do a circuit exchange requires um, a a whole nother set of things. So you typically take the same circuit that you're placed on. Really, when you're transporting a patient, especially if you have not been seen or are really exposed a lot of patients with ECMO, is you really want to try and not to manipulate the cannulas. Those are sutured into the skin in multiple places. They're taped. We really secure the cannulas to help them not move because it can change the way the circuit flows based on where your cannulas are placed is very important. So really trying to see or mark the cannulas, know where they're at at the skin level, and that's a really big thing for transport specifically. And other than that, you would typically have a perfusionist or a respiratory therapist that can run the machine come with you or an intensivist that will deal with mostly the machine. But moving the patient, transporting the patient, it's really make sure you have an eye of where the cannulas are, where they're entering the body, and try not to manipulate those as much as possible.
0: Thank you so much. ECMO is fascinating to me. I'm currently working somewhere where we do do ECMO transports. And my day with the ECMO team blew my mind. So it was really amazing to hear about what Denver Health's done in the setting of trauma. And I I can't wait to see how it continues to evolve. So thanks for staying down with us and talking about it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You can go down a physiology wormhole when you look at ECMO. So thank That's you right. guys so much. Thank you.